You got to say so? And it says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, this testing Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own, on his own animal, brought him to, the, to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him, then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Lord, we thank you for your word that is truth. We thank you for your grace that is sufficient. We thank you for your presence that is here. And Lord, I just pray that in these next few moments that you would speak to us, your people, clearly. I pray, God, that I would decrease, that you would increase. I pray that you would make us all hearers of your word as well as doers of your word. I pray against confusion. I pray against anything that would try to distract our minds and our hearts. I pray right now, my God, that you would stir us to a holy reverence of your word. And God, I pray that we would not leave here the same way that we entered in, but that your power would manifest through your word and that you bring change to our lives for your glory, for our good, and for the good of our nation. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Everyone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you do not have an outline, please raise your hand. Just hold it up. Just keep it up there. If you don't have an outline, I want to make sure everyone gets an outline. As I encourage you weekly, as I encourage you weekly, these outlines are good for a couple of reasons. The first reason why the outlines are good is because you can follow along on the intro, um, and you can also take notes, and so that's very good. Another reason why these outlines are good is because there are some questions in there that are good for you to answer, you know, speaking like, what did God speak to you, and how are you going to apply or respond to what God communicated. And the third reason why I always tell you that these outlines are good is because we are supposed to be making disciples. In other words, we're supposed to be helping people not just come to faith in Jesus, but also help them grow in their faith in Christ. And so it is easy for us to go ahead and take what we're hearing on a Sunday if we're taking notes and we can sit down with a brother or a sister or someone that we're trying to share the gospel with and we can help them to grow in their faith through the words that you're communicating. And I know sometimes we wonder, how do I make disciples? Well, that's how you do it. You simply transfer the information. That's what Jesus did. He spoke on behalf of the Father. He spoke what he heard. The disciples repeated what Jesus communicated, and that's how it continues on. And so today, we're doing what? We're repeating the words of Jesus. The, the words that I just read right now, those are words. Most of them, if you have the right Bible, they're in red. Amen. 
And so they're Jesus' words, and what do we do? We simply communicate what the Word of God teaches. That's how we make disciples. That's that's part of how we help people grow in their faith. And so that's why I believe these outlines are important for you. And so if you look at your outline here, you'll see um, the main reason for this series that we are in. Right now we are in a series called No, No Apologies. It's apologetics. And us being able to defend the faith without apology and clearly do that. Um, the main reason for this series is to better equip the church to be effective and emboldened ambassadors of Christ before this world by building our faith in the resurrection power of God proclaimed in the scriptures and confirmed in the lives transformed from darkness into light. And so we've had a couple of different people that have come. We had Adams Road Ministry. They came. They're a ministry of, of people that were, all of them that are part of this ministry were converted from Mormonism. And so we got to see how God brought these people that are on fire for Jesus, loving Jesus from darkness to light we see that the power of the gospel is true in their lives we had a brother that came he was a former muslim and he spoke to us for all day saturday and spoke to us practically all day sunday and he showed us the power of god to reach even those who are bound in deception and that in, in that particular religion and then we had a brother who came last week and he shared you know he said that he, he wasn't like a full-blown like all-out atheist but he also pointed out to us that the spectrum of atheism is so wide and so he was a guy that was raised in a system that never thought about God, a system that never considered God, and yet God delivered him and brought him to faith in Christ in a radical way. He shared his dreams with us, and it was a powerful testimony again to who God is. But here's what I want you to get. I didn't bring all those people here and invite them to come and speak just so that way you could be like, wow, that's amazing. It's because my prayer is that that would embolden you to know that God is still active and God is still alive and he still wants to change people's lives and that we can be encouraged in our faith and know how to witness to these people that are going through the, um, the things that they're going through in their lives to be able to help them to come across the line of faith. That's the main purpose of this. Um, our culture, second paragraph here, our culture is in desperate need, and I don't know if you realize this, of a contextualized Christianity that is uncompromising with the truth, that is truly the light in the midst of the darkness and the salt of the earth. And I, I want to read that again. Our culture is desperately, it, it, it is in desperate need of a contextualized Christianity. That's what the title of the message is today, contextualized Christianity that is uncompromising with the truth, that is truly the light light in the midst of the darkness and the salt of the earth. When we look at all of the stuff that is going on in our culture, we look at all of the stuff that is going on around us, there is a desperate need for a church that is living, that is active, that is communicating the truth in love, and that knows how to do this. And so if you've been watching the news, which I'm pretty sure most of you do, um, you know, you, you, and, and even if you haven't been watching the news, you see it around conversations that you have, there is a lot of confusion that is going on in our days. And I want you to realize something, that you and I are supposed to be light. You know what light? does light dispels darkness light clears up confusion if there was any doubt as to how you looked all you got to do is turn on the light and look in the mirror hello you thought you was looking cute until you flip that light switch on then you realize oh my goodness I might want to change that outfit one day I was sitting I, I was invited to come and um, speak at a church and I got dressed in like half the dark because I didn't want to wake um, someone up and I realized when I was sitting down you know, I was sitting down waiting to go up I was wearing a navy blue suit and I had black socks on for some of y'all you're like that's not a big deal but it was a big deal to me like I was like yo I got black socks on right now this is looking crazy I was like pulling my suit pants down I'm like this is messed up and it was all because of one thing because I was you know I wasn't I wasn't fully you know lit hello someone I don't mean it like that 
Some of y'all like, I don't get lit like that. I don't get down like that. Hello. The room was not fully lit. Amen. Okay. And so ultimately, you know, the room was not lit up. And so I was not able to, no matter what I say, y'all are just, uh, I'm going to pray for you. We're going to have another fall, call to fall in a moment. Um, but anyway, because the lights were not on, I didn't put on the clothing the right way, right? I didn't know that. I didn't notice the colors were off. And I want you to realize something, that that is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to bring light into dark situations. And I want you to understand this as well. Light is not always welcomed. I want, I want you to think about this for a moment. Have you ever walked into a room when someone is sleeping and turned the light on? Oh, I don't, why, why you got to do that? Right? My daughter, she... She, she loves you not to turn the lights on when she's, you know, you're trying to wake her up. And so when I wake her up in the morning, I walk over, I turn the hallway light on, and then I go and I wake her up, and then she goes like this, five minutes, and I'm like, all right, I'll give you five minutes, and come back, and five minutes, and I'm like, come on, baby, get up. And then she's, you know, my wife sometimes is not as gracious because my wife's like trying to move, right? Like, let, let, let's go. And so my wife's like, all right, I gave you five minutes, and it's like, boom, lights on. And my daughter's like, oh, why you got to do that? Like gremlins, you know? I don't know. Some of y'all like, don't even know what gremlins are. You're like, what is that movie? Don't worry about it. It's a good one. But anyway, you know, so I, just, I just dated myself. But, you know, nonetheless, right, you know, it's bright light, bright light. You know, so, so you know, ultimately what, what happens is you and I need to realize that it's not like everybody is welcoming. You know why? Because people are comfortable in their sin. People are comfortable in the lifestyle they're living. People are cool with just enough light to get by. People are okay. And what I want you to realize is that God does not want us to be a dim light. He wants us to be a bright light. How do I know this? Well, in the book of Matthew, when he talks about a city set upon a hill, what does he talk about? He says, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Why? Because then you dim the light. What we do is we leave the light to illuminate completely. And I want you to know that we need to be those kind of people that are luminous, those kind of people that say, God, we want to shine as brightly as you want us to shine. And some people are going to be uncomfortable with that. And that is okay. Amen. Sadly, we live in a day, last paragraph here, sadly we live in a day in which Christianity is losing ground in the morality war within the culture because we have lost our ability to influence others do. And I'm going to talk about these three things today due to a lack of compassion, a lack of confrontation, and a lack of clear gospel presentation. I'll say that again because we have lost the ability to influence others due to a lack of compassion, lack of confrontation, and lack of clear gospel presentation. The only hope for our world is a biblically contextualized Christianity that sees the mission as a lifestyle of rescue. Did you hear me? It is us understanding. I was sitting down with a brother of mine. He's starting a ministry called, I think it's called Extreme Agape. And, and, and it's, it's an evangelistic ministry purely. This is a guy, um, he, works for, he, he works for T-Mobile right now. Um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a sales guy. He does very well. He's been working with them for like 15 years or something like that. I mean, it's been a long time. And he has such a heart for evangelism that he's literally walking away from that job. He's starting this ministry. And as him and I were sitting down, we were having um, lunch the other day. You know, we, he, 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 he promised to give me this book. It's a book by John Bevere called Good or God. And I said, yeah, man, I'll take it. And so, you know, he gave me that book. And as we were sitting down, I, I, loved, I, I loved what he was, he, 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 we were talking about. He was talking about his heart for evangelism. And he said what stirred him to understand what, how desperate the times were and why he had to make this decision was because he was in a, in a business mindset, business meeting. 
and he was with some guys. They were talking numbers and stuff like that, talking stats. And please pay attention to this because this is very important. And as he's sitting down having this conversation about stats, he walks the guy out of the business meeting, walks the guy to his car. They're still talking numbers on the way to the car. Guy gets in the car, goes away. This on a Friday. On Monday, they all get an email. The guy that he was just talking to died over the weekend. He said, because I was in business mindset, business mode, I never shared. And he started weeping. Now, I, I, I share the story because he started weeping. Because you know what? Most of us, we have become so desensitized to that. People die, so what? No, no, understand. People die without Jesus and go to hell. That's a big what. And the church needs to be concerned about that reality. When we talk about contextualizing Christianity, I want you to get the big idea. Here's the big idea for the day. Understand this when I talk about contextualized Christianity because, you know, a lot of people, they downplay and they talk bad about contextualized Christianity. And rightly so because there's some people that contextualize Christianity for the wrong reason. But let me, let me help you understand what I mean by this. Truly contextualized Christianity adopts, adapts to influence. It doesn't change to be inclusive. Did you hear what I just said? Truly contextualized Christianity adapts to influence. It adapts to, the, to, to what's going on so it can influence the culture. It doesn't change to be inclusive. It's not changing so the way everybody feels. I heard of a pastor. Somebody was telling me about this pastor. He said this, and, and, and listen, I'm going to tell you something, something today. I'm going to offend everybody in this room probably. It's, it's, it's going to happen. And, and if anybody's listening to this, they're going to get offended as well. So prepare yourself because it's going to be painful. But I want you to know this. I do it because I love you. I do it because I really believe that we are living in a desperate hour. But, he, but this pastor was speaking, and he was saying somebody shared his, 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 um, you know, his, his foolishness, because that's what it was, you know, online. And what he was saying is he's saying, you know what? He said, I want, you know, all of the LGBT community, community to come, and I want them to sit in the front row, and I want them to feel comfortable. I don't want them to feel judged. I don't want them to feel anything like this. And let me tell you something. I don't think we need to judge anyone, but nobody should feel comfortable living in sin when they come into a true house of God. Nobody should feel, listen, it, as a matter of fact, if I read, you, you go, go ahead, I'm not going to read it, you can go home and do this. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and see what should be happening when we get together. It says that we should all be prophesying, and as we prophesy, we reveal the secrets of the hearts of those that are there, and they are convicted of their sin, and they cry out to what? Because God is there, because God wants them. Because here's the thing, if you walk into God's presence and you feel comfortable, you never change. You never experience deliverance. And the church today has become so wishy-washy and watered down. We don't want to talk about any kind of sin because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to tell people it is not cool to live together before you get married. We don't want to tell people it is not cool for you to be a liar. We don't want to tell people that it is not okay for you to lust and look at pornography. We don't want to tell people that stuff because we want to give them this amazing grace that has become cheap grace. As though God cannot change someone from where they are. But we need to rise up as a church. And we need to recognize that God wants to bring deliverance to lives. Not because he's mean, but because he loves. Because he doesn't want to sentence anyone to an eternity in hell. That is not God's design. I don't care what fool tells you that. God does not want to create someone to just send them to hell. That's not the God of love. God does everything he can to pursue you and love you and embrace you and draw you. But he doesn't accept you just the way you want to be. 
He says you have to turn from your sin. You have to turn from your unrighteousness. And we talk about contextualizing Christianity. It's about us living within the culture in a way that we understand what is going on. The same way that Jesus did it. Everything Jesus did. We were talking about evangelism yesterday in our elders meeting. Look, man, we need to start reading the Bible and see how people evangelize. How did Jesus evangelize? How did the apostles evangelize? How did they win people? What did they do? They contextualized Christianity. They found out where they could speak and they could bring deliverance and they could bring change. And you know what they did? They went there, they spoke, and people got saved. Oh, yeah, there were people that rejected for sure. But let me tell you something. There were people that were getting saved. There were people who were turning from their sin. Why? Because Jesus said something that is really amazing. If we listen to it, we've got to think about this. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Can I tell you something? We need to find the harvest that is plentiful. Hello? And it's not just, and listen to me now, it's not just for one person or two people in the church. It's for the church. Say the church. It's for us as a church to rise up. It's not just for pastors or preachers or evangelists or, you know, no, no. It is for the church to rise up in this hour and to go forward. And so as, as we look at this contextualization, the first point that I want to make here is this. Say contextualized Christianity is compassionate. Contextualized Christianity is compassionate. So I start out with this, right? I'm going to start with the soft part of the message. I know you're like, Bishop, that wasn't soft. Listen, this was soft, what I, was, what I read here. The loving, gracious part. This, this guy here, he comes, this lawyer rises up and he talks to Jesus and he's like, listen, so what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Because everybody wants to go to heaven, amen? Even atheists want to go to heaven. They, they, they may not want to admit there's a heaven, but they want to go there. They don't want to go to hell, right? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question is so huge, so important. And so what does Jesus tell him to do? He says, well, hey, he says, what, is the, what does the law say? And so the guy is really smart, right? He's a lawyer. Hello. Lawyers are smart, right? Amen. Supposedly. He's an expert in the law. He knows his stuff. And so he replies, he, sound, he sounded like Jesus when the Pharisees, he might have been privy to that conversation, but he sounded like Jesus, right? Because didn't Jesus reply the same way when they tested Jesus in another chapter, right? They asked him, well, which, which is the first and most important? Thank you so much. Which is, the, which is the first and most important command? And he replied exactly like Jesus. And Jesus is like, what you said is good. He says, go, do, and live. That's what the law says. The law says, listen to me now. The law says, go do and you will live. That's what the law says. That's what the old covenant law says. And you know what happens when you, I'm going to tell you what happens when you try to go do and live. You realize the same thing this guy realized. I want you to look at what he says here. Look, 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 look down at the text with me. Look what it says in verse 20. I can't see this when my contacts are blurring up on me here. Or I'm getting old, one of the two. But here's the thing. It says in verse 29, look what it says here. After Jesus says this, go do and live. What is the next thing that it says there? It says, but he wanting to justify himself. Wanting to, why, why, wait a second, didn't Jesus give him kudos? Didn't Jesus say, man, you read it right, good to go. Just do it and live. You know why he wanted to justify himself? Because he was confronted by the law of God that said, you're falling short. And because of that, he seeks justification. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Everybody seeks justification in the presence of God. It is the way that you seek it and the way that you find it are, are what happens. Some people seek it through reasoning. I'm going to reason my way out of it, which is what he tries to do. I'm going to reason because you know what his question is? His question is this. He says, well, who's my neighbor? You know what he's really saying? 
Who do I need to love? That's what he's talking about. Who do I need to love? Who do I need to love? That's the, that, that's the question of this guy's heart. Because what happened was the Pharisees and the lawyers, you know, they had this twisted interpretation of who their neighbor was. They, they thought based upon a, a faulty interpretation of Psalm 139, I think it's verse 22. Um, yeah, ver, Psalm 139, verse 21 and 22, when David is talking to the Lord and he says, the wicked I have hated, and he goes through all of this faulty interpretation. Like, yo, it's okay to just hate wicked people. Like, that's Okay. It isn't what, that, that, is, that isn't what that scripture is talking about. David is having a conversation with the Lord, and he's communicating, man, God, I hate the people that have made yourself enemies because they've made themselves, and, and, and I'm against them. That's what he's communicating. So here's, here's what happens. They start thinking, well, you know what? The only people that are my neighbors, they're, they're, they're just the righteous people. So what does Jesus do? Jesus gives him this amazing parable. He says, check this out. So there was a guy, he gets robbed, and all of a sudden this holy priest this holy bishop. We'll use the bishop. I just twisted. I, I, just, I, I just put a word in the scripture, all right? I'm not adding to the scripture. I'm trying to contextualize, all right? Just stick with me here. This holy bishop walks by this dude on the street like, mm, I'm going to the other side of the road. So holy, he can't touch someone that's hurting like that. The next one comes up on there. It's Levite. In the Old Testament, priests, like the priest, Levites, right? Elders, deacons, similar situation. So this amazing minister walks up, sees this guy hurting. Now, I'm going to go across the street. I'm too holy for them. Then this Samaritan comes up on the scene. Now, Samaritans, they were unholy, right? You know, because Samaritans, for those of you who don't know, they were half-breeds. They weren't pure-breed, right? So they were half-Jewish. They were half-Gentile. So the Jews were like, you guys are unclean. You know what Jesus does? Jesus uses an example and says, this unclean guy... He sees him, he has compassion on him. He goes over to him, bandages him. He goes over to him, takes oil so he can, you know, um, um, deal with his wounds. Takes wine. What is he saying? The wine is this antiseptic so he can clean out his wounds. He takes him, wraps him up, puts him on his animal or his donkey or his horse or whatever. Takes him to an inn. Takes care of him in there. And then he's got to leave. And so the next day he goes and does what? He pays the guy's rent for the next couple days or whatever and says to the innkeeper, take care of him. But don't just take care of him. If you spend anything else, don't worry about it. When I come back, I got it. So what does he do here? He shows that we have to be compassionate. Did he, did, did, at, at any point in this conversation, think about this now, at any point in this parable, do you ever see him ask what his sin was? Do you ever see him ask what he did wrong? Do you ever see it asked like, man, you know, because here's what the priest would probably do. You must have done something to deserve that. That's how some people evangelize. They look at everybody's situation, they point out to them everything they did wrong, and so yeah, that's real loving and gracious. Amen. Good job. Just saying. That's not what this guy does. What does this guy do? He doesn't try to figure out what happened to him. He sees someone hurting. Let me tell you something that needs to happen for us. To contextualize our faith, we must see people as people. Did you hear me? Not cultural people groups, but scriptural people groups. Are you hearing me? See, our culture wants to say there is this community, and there's this community, and there's this community. Hold on a second. This is what my Bible says. I don't know about your Bible. If you're reading the right Bible, this is what it says. There are two people groups we see in the Scripture. Sinners, saints. Saved, unsaved. Redeemed, condemned. That's what we see in the Scripture. There is no black, white, pink, this, that. No. It is we are all what? All of us are born into sin is what the Scriptures teach. 
And then we have people that have put their faith in Jesus. And so if you put your faith in Jesus, then that means what? That you're a saint by definition, by your new identity. You are now a saint, a child of God, not because you're perfect, but because you are holy. Praise God. And then there are others uh, on this planet that they are sinners separated from God because they, they, they are in their rebellion. But what does this guy show us? He shows us that we are supposed to be compassionate. You know what I love that Jesus said? Look what Jesus says in this last verse here in verse 39. And in verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 36. He says this. He says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? You know what Jesus does? Jesus turned the whole thing around. He said, it's not about who is your neighbor, it's who are you being a neighbor to. It's not about who you like or who you don't like. It's about you being neighborly. It's about you caring. So that's the first point is compassion. The second one, say this with me, say contextualized Christianity is confrontational. So notice I said the first part. It's about being compassionate. It's about caring about hurting people. It's about being concerned about those that are hurting, those who, are, those who have gone through. When we look at this whole, you know, nightclub shooting, we look at this mom that lost her child that was on vacation. When we look at this young lady who was killed, you know, for her faith. When we look at those type of situations that happen here. When we look at, you know, people who are dying, like, you know, in other places because, you know, the terrorists continue to terrorize. You know that, right? I know that most of all of our news is all Orlando and all this and all, but you know, there are other people that are being murdered, that are being killed, right? This is going on. And so you know what should happen to us is that we should be moved with compassion for those who are losing their loved ones. Those who are traumatized, we heard a story, I think Sister Monica was the one that asked it, about a, young, about a family and, and, and a young boy who was, who every time that um, his, his mom goes to leave the house, he's asking, you know, mommy, you know, are you going to die? Like, afraid of what's going to go on. We, we should be moved by compassion because of what is going on. But can I tell you something? We can't just stay in a place of, of, of compassion. We have to maintain compassion, but we have to move to the point of confrontation. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets uncomfortable, and it's okay. We can be uncomfortable. Turn, turn, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. It's going to get real uncomfortable. And I don't mean for it to be uncomfortable. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be flippant about that. But Romans chapter 1 is, is, is very confrontational to the, to, to, the, to, the, to the culture that we live in and what is going on within our nation and within our days. And so we have some serious situations here. And so listen, as we seek to show compassion, there will and there must come a time in which sin is confronted or we are not truly loving people. Are you hearing me? You can say you love someone all day long, but if you never, ever confront them about their sin, if you never, ever confront them about their condition before God, do you really care about them? Seriously. Or do you more care about your feelings? Because you don't want to confront them because you don't want to hurt their feelings, right? You don't want to, you don't want to do something that's going to make them feel bad. No, the truth is that if we love someone, then we care about them. And, you know, we all, we, we, we all quote, you know, John 3.16 as a real good example of this, right? But here's what I want you to realize. You know what John 3.16 shows us? It shows us that God so loved that he gave. Are you hearing me? God so loved because God loved us, because God cared about his creation, because of his feelings about his creation. You know what he does? He gives. He gives what? He gives his son to die in our place because he loves us. Understanding. Let me, let, let, let me, and I'll say this again later on, but every issue that we deal with comes back to that cross. What does that cross mean? 
what happened on that cross. We need to address that because that's what we need to realize. Jesus died. He didn't, listen, Jesus didn't just die on a cross again just because he wanted to. He had to. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says this. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Say all unright ungodliness. All ungodly, not some ungodliness, all ungodliness, not just one type of ungodliness, every type of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so what do we see here? We see here that, they, that there was some intelligence in the beginning of creation that they knew, that they understood, right, about him. Because although, and in verse 21, because although they knew God, they had knowledge of him, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, now, now you see the progress, right, that is, that, that is happening here, right? There's a progression that is taking place. And so when we look at Romans, and we're going to continue reading here, I want to pause there for a moment. When you look at Romans 1, 18 through 32, it is a clear denunciation of evolution for it shows us the devolution of man. Are you hearing me? Not the evolution of man, not man starting off as some amoeba or something like that and then, you know, forming into something else. And, all, and I, don't know how, how, I don't even know how that came to be when since there was nothing in the, anyway, y'all know what I'm saying. But here's the thing. If you want to just look at man purely, right? Let's just look at man just purely, just man as creation. Forget how he, got, how he came to be. Let's just talk about his beginning and where he is now. Man is not evolving into some better thing. Man is devolving into something worse. Are you hearing me? This is what the scriptures are saying to us. And so when we talk about confrontation, it's not like we're getting better. You know, we have this, we, we have this political, you know, buzzword, um, progressive. And I want you to know, when you hear that word, what they are doing is they are progressing the culture into more devolution. That's all they're doing. They're just progressing us further and further into and under God's wrath. And so he communicates these things here. He shows us a good argument. And then he goes on in verse, 20, in, in verse 20, 23 here. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God, now look at this, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason... God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now look at that. Even and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. 
sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, listen to this, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is not the evolution of man. This is the devolution of man. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. What you see here is three things, four things. You see intelligence, ignorance, indulgence, and impenitence. Those four things is what you see written out here. And you can just write it down next to it. Intelligence, verses 18 through 20. We read it already. They knew God. The, the revelation of God was there. But here's what happens. Man wasn't a beast that worshiped idols and then evolved into a worshiper of God. On the contrary, man, Adam, was created with clear knowledge of God and man suppressed. It says that they suppressed the truth. The truth that God put inside of man. The truth that is there, that is part of the Imago Dei, the image of God, they suppress it. They push it down. They don't want to live it, right? Your conscience tells you, you know, people always talk about this, you know, there was a voice or, you know, something inside of me. That's that conscience that's there. That's that truth that God is trying to bring out through you that he placed there. And the first thing that we start to do is we, talk to, we start to suppress that. But look at that. It doesn't end in the suppression of the truth. What's the next step? Verses 21 to 22 says what? They refuse the truth. So the first thing you do is you suppress the truth. And look, this doesn't, I want you to hear me when I say this. This is not just speaking about people that are outside. This is people that are inside. Because you know what happens to us? The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit shows us where we are in error, and we want to suppress that truth. We want to justify ourselves. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do this. I, I can do this. No, 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 no. And we suppress the truth. And so that's the first thing that we start to do as human beings. And then the next thing is we refuse the truth. So now it's not just about inside. Now when someone comes to you and says, hey, brother, I need to let you know, man, that this is, un this, this is unscriptural what you're doing, uh, you reject that. No, no, that's your interpretation. That's the favorite thing. That, 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 that's what that scripture means to you. No, 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 no. No, no, that, that's what the scripture means to all people. That's what the scripture means to all men. That's what, that, that's what these scriptures mean. Makes it clear. But can I tell you something? Not only do they do that. Look, look, look at the progression here. So they suppress the truth. They refuse the truth. And then look at verse 25. Just look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Are you hearing me? So the first thing we do, we suppress it. I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not paying attention to the conviction. And then we refuse it when someone tries to bring it from the outside. And then what do we do? We make an exchange. We're going to accept the lie for the truth. That's what the scripture says, the devolution of man. The second thing is ignorance, verses 21 to verse 23. It shows us here, man desired sin, so he ignored the revelation of God and became an idolater, worshiping creation rather than creator. So the first thing is, he's intelligent, and then he goes from there to now, he's being ignorant. He's ignoring the, what he knows about God. So now he's going to worship created things. Now he's going to see, you know, you look at the Egyptians, and you look at all of the different gods that they had. What were they doing? They were worshiping created things rather than God the creator. That's what they were doing. 
They're worshiping these idols. They're bound. And you know what? We look today and we think about idols like we don't, like we don't bow to stuff like that. Listen, we have our own idols that we bow to. We bow to our own desire, our own pleasure, our own, our own things we bow to. The third thing there in verse 24 to verse 27 is indulgence. So man indul- man's indulgence. Now let's read that together. We're going to read that part together. It says here, because I need to point this out. It says there in verse 24, it says, therefore God gave them up. Now this, this to me, listen, I need you to hear me when I say this. These are some of the most scary words in your Bible. These words right here that I'm reading. God gave them up. The reason why God gives them up is because God reveals himself to them. Because God shows them who he is. Because God demonstrates his majesty and power. They suppress it. They reject it. They refuse it. And they, they accept the truth of God. I mean, the lie in the place of God's truth. And then what does God do? It says there, and this is why verse 24 is so important. It says, therefore, say therefore. Therefore is connecting you to all that was previously said. And he says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Again, that's the second time that we see this judgment of God to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. In other words, they earned this. Look at verse 20, 28. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Do you hear this? Do you hear these words that God is saying, listen, I tried to show them who I was. They rejected me. I tried, I I revealed myself to them. I gave them my truth. They would not worship me. And so because of that, the result of that is I give them up. I give them up and I give them over. So what does he do? He gives them up to their idolatry first. This is, this is how we, listen to me, church. This is how we go the way that we go. And this happens in the church. This is the reason, when I talk about this in a couple of weeks, this is why prosperity gospel is so, is so, I said gospel, I meant garbage. Prosperity garbage is so bad for the church. It is because what that does is it promotes idolatry. And notice the first step for us to be given up is when we do what? When we bow to our idols and reject the truth of God. So he gives them up to their idols, but then he gives them up to their immorality. So the first thing he does, he gives them over to their idols. And because they continue to worship their idols, he gives them over to their immorality, to those passions, those vile passions is what he says there. And then what does he do? He gives them over to this debased mind. That's what he does because they are there. So we're seeing God's wrath. Now, when we talk about indulgence, man's indulgence in Sid led him to idolatry, which quickly turned to immorality. Now, I want you to realize God's judgment. We talk about God's judgment because notice what verse 18 says. It says this. Look at it. It says, for the wrath of God. Say the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So when we talk about the wrath of God, what are we talking about? Well, there's like five aspects to God's wrath that we see in the scriptures. The first one is the one that we think about typically, and it is the eternal wrath in hell. We think about God's wrath as the eternal wrath in hell. That's for sure part of his wrath. 
The second one is the eschatological wrath, which is the day of the Lord. So eschatology, end times. So we're going to see the wrath of God poured out in this earth. And, you know, depending on what your position is on the rapture, if you're going to go before, middle, or after, listen, whatever your position is, that's on you. Here's the deal. There's going to be some outpouring of wrath in this earth. And we as Christians should be looking forward to the day of the Lord and know that he's coming for his church for sure. Amen. That's the truth here. We're not children of wrath, so we will never experience God's wrath being poured out upon this earth. That's what the scriptures teach here. But here's the thing. The thing is we have the eschatological wrath of God. The third is the cataclysmic wrath of God. Our examples would be, you remember the flooding in the times of Noah? You remember the, 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 the fire and brimstone in Sodom and Gomorrah? Those are the cataclysmic wraths of God that we see that, you know, that, that, that take place. Number four of, of God's wrath is the consequential wrath of God. That's the sowing and reaping that, you know, you cannot, listen, you sow things, you're going to reap things. That's the reality. It's not karma. It's just a true thing. You know, you can't sow to the flesh and expect to reap eternal life. The scripture says you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. Amen. And the last one is the one that he's talking about here, and this is the scary one. It is the wrath of abandonment. It is when God removes his restraint, letting people go in their sin. Notice these are, again, some of the scariest words in those three verses. He gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them over. Scary. But he, God only shows his wrath because of what? Because we rebel against him. Because we dishonor him. No one's going to stand before God and, he's gonna, and, and be able to say to him, well, God, I was perfect. God, I was trying to live for you. I was trying to live holy. I was praying three times a day. I was bound before you. I was loving my neighbors. I was loving my enemies. I was, you know, treating my spouse right. I was, uh, nobody's going to be able to go before God and say that. And he'll be like, man, I just want to throw my wrath on you. It's a terrible picture of God. It's not true. But here's the reality. The reality is that all men are before God are going to be guilty, right? Because what? Because we are the ones who bring this upon us in the last verse. And, and look at these last verses with me. Verse 28 to 32. He says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, because here's what I want to do. What I want to say is obviously, we you know, the, these scriptures here that we talked about, they're clearly talking about homosexuality. There's no question about that, right? There should be no question talking about men with, you know, men lusting for men, women using, you know, leaving the natural use for something that's not natural. That's clear. There, there's no question about that. But here's what I do want you to get. The scripture doesn't just leave um, homosexuality there as the only sin that he's talking about here. He's showing us that there are a lineage, a line of sins that are in the hearts of men. And look what he says here, because the last one, the first one is intelligence, the second one is ignorance, the third one is indulgence, and the last one is impenitence. They are unrepentant. And he says in verse 28, he says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, meaning a mind that is, uh, that is unfruitful, a mind that is incapable of discerning right from wrong, a mind that is given to evil to do those things which are not fitting. And look what he says here now he goes through the list he says being filled with all unrighteousness say all unrighteousness you don't have to keep repeating but then he goes on he says sexual immorality he says wickedness he says covetousness he says maliciousness he says full of envy he says murder he says strife deceit evil-mindedness they are whisperers is there something wrong with whispering yes when you're a gossip there is are you hearing me these, these are the results of people who are idolaters. These are the results of people who, who continue to rebel against God. They continue to be that. They are backbiters. They are haters of God. They are violent. Do we see violence in our day? I would think yes. They are proud. Be careful when you talk about this pride and that pride. There's a problem here. That's an issue in the scriptures. 
All right, there, there, there shouldn't be something there. They are boasters. Listen to this one. Inventors of evil things. Listen to that. They haven't even, they, they haven't even come up with some of the evil that we're going to see. Because they're inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Hello, somebody. All y'all young people up in here, don't be disobedient to your parents. Don't fall under this condemnation. All right. Disobe this is part of judgment. Undiscerning untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Look at this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God. It is not that man do not know God's judgment. I told you this statistic a, a while ago when I went to a, a conference talking about contextualizing Christianity, and one of the statistics was it was like 80%, 90% of people believe the Bible is true, believe God laws are, God's laws are true. The problem is the reason that they don't come to God is because they don't want to obey him. It's not because they don't believe the Bible. It's not because they don't believe that what God says is right. It is because they don't want to obey. And what are they doing? They're turning themselves over to the wrath of God. But it gets, it gets so much uglier that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only, listen to this, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. See, here's what happens. They become impenitent. Not only do I do it, but I say, man, it's cool for you to do it too. You can do whatever you want. You know, when we go ahead as a nation, and, and listen, we go ahead as, as a nation, and we say sins against God are legal and they're cool, that's a problem. Because you know what we're doing? We're doing this. You know, everybody's, I'm going to tell you right now, everybody's looking for the political candidate. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think that there is the political candidate right now that I would vote for with a, with a completely clear, clear conscience. Let's just make that crystal clear. Make, make crystal clear. I'm praying for one of them to get saved, for sure. Straight up. I'm praying for one of them to get saved, you know, because we got two to choose from here. You know, I'm going to be forced into a position where I can either vote for no one, and me, I, I can write someone's name, and I'm going to write in Pastor Aldo. <clears throat> I don't know. Vote for, vote for someone. I, I don't know. But the point is, that's a non-vote because it's not going to matter. I'm going to have a clear conscience before God, though, for sure. Or I'm going to have to vote in, in some way against whoever I think is less evil of the two. Great choices. But here is the problem, y'all. Listen to me when I say this. When our nation's leaders applaud sin, there is a problem. There is an issue in the morality structure. And here's what they're doing. They are saying before God, I don't care what you think. And I'm going to applaud everyone because you know what? And the, rea and the reality is what they want to be is they want to be that loud voice and the voice of the culture that says, hey, man, y'all do whatever y'all want to do. We're going to be the standard of morality. No, sir. This is the standard of morality. This is God's standard. And you know what? Everybody in government, listen, anybody that knows anyone in government, you let them know. Anybody in a political position, you make sure you write them, let them know. They are not representatives of, of just us. They are representatives of God Almighty. And they are his ministers. That's what the Bible, not what I say. That's what the Bible says. They are his ministers to execute his judgments. And you want to know what? The same way that teachers are going to be judged in a greater way. Trust me, politicians are going to be judged in a greater way. Hear me when I say this. So we need to be on our faces. That's why we did the call to, to fall and we prayed because we want to see God moving in our nation in a great way. Last thing here, and I'm closing with this. Say this with me. Contextualized Christianity, Contextualized Christianity. is gospel-centered. Contextualized Christianity is gospel-centered. I want to take you to one other scripture because as I was reading yesterday, turn with me to Ezekiel, and then we're going to come back to Romans. 
So hold your place in Romans and go back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 13. I want you to, I want you to see this verse because as I was reading this verse, I, and, and listen, I'll tell you right now, I, I accidentally turned there and I was like, oh, this looks kind of interesting. I was in chapter 13 and I started reading. And as, and, and as, I, as I'm reading through here, my heart began to sink because I began to see, I was actually in chapter 12. Um, and then my heart begins to sink because in chapter 13 of Ezekiel, as you're turning there, in chapter 13 of Ezekiel, God is rebuking two groups of people specifically. He's specifically rebuking false prophets, but he's also rebuking false prophetesses. And not, and, and they're, they're, God rebukes false prophets all the time, but there are very few places that he specifically goes out and rebukes false prophetesses, right, which is female prophets who are speaking on behalf of God. And in this particular context, they're doing divination. But here's what I want you to hear in verse 22. Look at, look at verse 22, and you tell me if this resonates with what's going on in our day. He says this here. He says, because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked so that they do not turn from his wicked way to save his life. Did you hear that? This is what happens. With lies, you make the heart of the righteous sad. Because here's, here, here, here are the lies that are portrayed that, you know, all Christians, because they, they just say Christians in general, you know, are hateful. Christians in general are bigots because they stand against sin. You know, and there's this tolerance thing that's going on nowadays. You tolerate everybody except us. That's not real tolerance. That, that, that's not real tolerance, right? That's false tolerance. But the truth of the matter is, that's the tolerance we have today. Well, I tolerate you, and I tolerate you, and I tolerate you. But, yo, you Christians, I'm not tolerating you because you're going to come and tell me that everything I'm doing is intolerable. Yes, before God it is. Hello. I still love you. You know, I still care for you. But I'm not going to sit there and say, yeah, man, live how you want to live. Because you know what the big issue is here? Can, can I tell you something? And I, I know some of my Christian friends are not going to like me for this. It's not so much about making Christians sad. It's about making the wicked happy. Are you hearing me? It's not so much about making Christians, oh, they feel bad. Oh, they, they, they said we're hateful. Oh, my God. Listen, get, get over it. Write a letter. I have to tell myself this. Write a letter to someone and get it off your chest and then move on. All right, that's what I did. I just wrote a letter. They, they get me upset. I'm like, all right, you're a politician. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to send you something and we'll move on. They're going to talk. They, listen, they should talk bad about you. But that doesn't mean you shut up. That doesn't mean that you stop being a voice. That doesn't mean you stop communicating the truth of God. And so here, my last point is, contextualized Christianity is gospel-centered. Verses 16, look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is the good news of this message, the good news that we've all been waiting for. Amen. Because I know you're depressed. I know I feel depressed. But here's the thing. Look what Paul says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Contextualized Christianity is gospel-centered. Here's the thing. When we contextualize Christianity, we walk in love. We walk in compassion like the Good Samaritan did. We walk in a, in, in a willingness excuse me, to confront sin the same way that Paul did, the same way that Jesus did, the same way that Peter did, the same way that any good preacher does, the same way that any real Christian does. We confront sin, but can I tell you something? We better also give a real solution to the problems we're pointing out. 
We can't just leave people over there feeling like there is no hope because we need to come back to the reality of what Paul said. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Now listen, we need to realize this. The only hope for our culture is the power of God. And that power is found where? In the gospel. It is found in the gospel. And can I tell you why it's found in the gospel? It is because the gospel has power because of the person who walks with you when you present it. Are you hearing me? What did Jesus tell the disciples in Matthew chapter 28? He told them, you know, all power, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have taught you. And he says what? And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. And every time you read, the, you read the accounts in the book of Acts, what was happening? It wasn't that Peter got up and preached some pre and pretty sermon, and all of a sudden people were like, well, that was amazing. No, it was a, pre a presentation of the gospel. And what did people do? People came because of the one who was standing there with Peter. Because of the one who was touching their hearts. Because of the one that, that had the power to change their lives. And what I want you to realize is no matter what your sin struggle is, you may be a person that is struggling with being a gossip like I talked about earlier. You may be a person who is struggling with being envious. You may be a person who's struggling with anger or unforgiveness. You may be a person who is undeserving. You may be a person that is a backbiter. You may be a person that is struggling with sexual immorality. I don't know what your struggle is, but what I want you to know is that if you will put your faith in Jesus, you can be set free from that sin. The hope is in the gospel. The hope is in the gospel. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And so when we go out there to contextualize, when we go out there to communicate, here's what we need to realize. Man is hopeless and he is helpless to do anything to save himself from God's wrath. But faith, listen to me now, which is activated by the hearing of the word of God, has the ability to bring men from darkness to light, from God's wrath to God's mercy. This is a beautiful thing that we should get excited about. That, 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 that when we talk about this gospel, that all of us are in that same category of being sinful, born into sin. All of us are in that same category. And Jesus died. And, and remember I said earlier that all of these issues need to come back to the cross? Here's what I want you to get. No matter what anybody says. And the reason why I brought this, this whole thing up and I wanted to go through Romans chapter 1 is because I want to make it crystal clear. I don't care what anybody feels. I was, listening to, I was listening to Dr. Michael Brown, and he said something on this particular topic, and, and, and because this is all over the place, I have to address this. The whole issue of homosexuality, we haven't received any new information about it. Are you hearing me? There isn't, there, there isn't some medical report that all of a sudden found the homosexual gene. That hasn't happened. There isn't some new scripture that was found somewhere that contradicts something else. That hasn't happened. There isn't some new interpretation of scripture that is biblical, that is sound, that has occurred, that has made us question whether homosexuality is sin or not. That, that hasn't happened. You want to know what the problem is? The problem is that you now have people that say, I want to be in a committed, loving, monogamous relationship. I want to, I want to raise up a family, and I, and, and I want to be just like the Joneses. And then you feel bad about that because, man, they love each other. Man, they're committed. But can I tell you something? If I had five wives and I loved all five of them, I'd still be going to hell for that. And I'd be going quickly because my one wife would kill me immediately. 
She'd be the first to go get a gun and let me know, all right, brother. I fear the Lord and I fear my wife. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Listen, here's what I want you to get. What I want you to understand is no matter how pretty it seems, no matter how nice it seems, it doesn't change the fact that God calls it sin. And that may sound harsh. That may sound really difficult. But listen, no matter how many good reasons you had for the lie you told, it is still a lie. It's never the truth. You may find 19 reasons to justify why you told that lie. It is still a lie. And if you practice lying, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. And so when we deal with this cultural issue that we're battling, listen, lovingly, graciously, kindly communicate. God is still offended by your lifestyle. It's just like all the people nowadays, right, you know, that they have. And, 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 and I figured this out because um, I'm so smart. I'm just kidding. But, you know, they look at the statistics of divorce. I'm so humble. Pride. Pride. I'm, I'm sorry. It's just pride. But I repent of it. But here's the thing. You know, they, they talk about divorce rates in the church, right? They, they always say, well, if you look at the, the, the divorce rates in the church and the divorce rates in the world, you know, the church is equaled, right, and everything like that. Get, you, you want me to tell you why it's like that? I'm going to tell you why it's like that. Because the world just lives together. Are you hearing me? That's the reason why. So the world, now listen, the divorce rate in the church should be much lower. We should have no divorce rate. It should be a zero rate. We should be amazing, right? But you know what the problem is? The problem is we're still living in a sinful world. And so the reality is that, there, you know, that that is going to occur, right? That is going to happen. But here's, here's the thing. You have people, and, and listen, now I, some of y'all, most, most of y'all in here are Hispanic, right? For those of you who are not Hispanic, Hispanics have this problem, right? And they get together with someone, and that's his wife. Because they live together. Eso es mi mujer, tú sabes. Listen, I don't care how long you live together. I don't care how many kids you have together. I don't care if you share bank accounts. I don't care if you, I don't care what you do. If you have not made a covenant before God and made it legal within our society, guess what? You ain't married. You're in an adulterous relationship. I don't care how much you love her or you love him. Don't let it be justified. And ladies, 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 glory to God. Don't let no one call you his wife if you ain't his wife. Amen. Don't play house. Hello. It's not okay to live together. We're just going to move in. Why are we moving in? We don't, we, need, we don't need to test drive this. Hello, somebody. We need, we, we, we need to go ahead and make a decision. We're going to be together or not, right, till death do us part, until I find out you got five wives and then it's over. Listen to me, church. We, we need to have faith in this gospel. We need to have faith that God is able to change hearts. And no matter what somebody is going through, no matter how much they justify themselves, bring them back to the Bible and show them what the scriptures say and say, look, this God, Jesus died. See, this is what I, what I was getting to. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross for sin. And if he died for it, you and I can't practice it and be okay with him. Are you hearing me? If he died for it, 
You and I cannot practice it and be okay with him. Because when I come to the cross, I do what? I make a decision. And that is to do what? To lay down my life, to take up my cross, follow him daily, and deny myself no matter what I like. Come on and stand to your feet. Let's bow our heads. So my question for you as you're in this place, first of all, I want to ask you, if you do not know Jesus today, if Jesus is not Lord of your life, you clearly heard the gospel. Jesus died for your sin. I'm going to call you to make a commitment to him. Not because I'm calling you, but because you're hearing his word and he is obviously allowing you to hear it. And so today, if you're not his child, today, if you have not put your faith in Christ, today is the opportunity for you to do that. To say, God, I don't want to live how I want to live. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for your glory. I recognize that you are God the Son. You came to this earth. You died in my place. You rose again. And I want to serve you. Got you in this place. Call on him right where you're at. Call on him. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved, is what the Bible says. And if you pray a prayer, and, and, and I, don't, I don't want to give you some, some you know, robotic prayer to pray, but if you pray and say, God, forgive me. God, help me to live for your glory. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. If you pray that prayer today, make sure that you do not leave this place without letting, look, I'll be standing out there by that door. Let me know that you did that so I can make sure that we get you connected with someone who can help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Let's just take a moment, church. I just want to pray really quickly for that, and then I'm going to say a couple more things, and then I'll wrap us up in prayer. But let's just pray. Father, I just pray for those right now, God, that are in this place, that don't know where they are with you, God, that, that, that recognize that they need you, that recognize, Lord God, that you are their only hope that recognize that they, they need to repent of their sin, they, that they realize that they've been rebellious against you, they've been disobedient, God. I pray that they would come to know that you died in their place. I pray that they would put their faith and their trust in you. And I pray that from this day forward, that they would serve you with all of their life, God. Father, may you glorify yourself in them, Lord God. Give them new life today in Jesus' great name. And for those of you that are in here, that you are Christians and you're walking with Jesus, my question for you is this. Are you committed to, to the contextualization of Christianity as a missionary? Understand, you are a missionary right where you are. Your neighborhood is your mission field. Your workplace is your mission field. Your school campus is your mission field. Your family may be your mission field, but you are for sure a missionary. The question is, are you an obedient missionary or you are, are you a disobedient missionary? And if you say, I, I struggle with this, so my question is, do you fall short in showing compassion as a missionary should? Do you fall short in confronting sin as a missionary should? Do you fall short in presenting the solution as a missionary should? Where is it that you fall short? I don't want you to walk in condemnation. I, I pray that conviction is heavy on your heart. And I pray that you will say today, God, I don't want to fall short in these areas anymore. I surrender these to you, and I ask you to help me to be the most faithful missionary that I can be. Let me pray for us. Grab your neighbor's hand, please, and let's all pray together as we pray this prayer. I'm going to ask you to repeat this after me. Say, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father we, come to you, we come to you, and we ask you, and we ask you 
Make us the missionaries, the missionaries you've called us to be. Called us to be. Help us. Help us. To be faithful. To be faithful. Help us. Help us. To be sensitive. To be sensitive. Help us. To be compassionate. To be compassionate. Help us. Help us. To stand for truth. To stand for truth. And help us. Help us. To provide the solution. To provide the solution. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now just pray for your neighbor real quick. Father God, we just lift up our neighbor to you right now. Father, as we pray this right now, Lord God, we know that you are able, God. We know that you're a holy God. We know that you're a powerful God. We know that you're mighty.